Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Ben, Jerry, Janet, Robin, and John, who all support the podcast on Patreon. You can support the show there with either a recurring or a one-time donation to help pay for various parts of the show. Or if that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, even face masks on our Teespring store. So check it out. My name is Anders Halverson, and my guests today are Claire Venny and Raphael Bouchard. Claire received her PhD from the University of Windsor, where she studied epigenetic inheritance and plasticity in Chinook salmon. She is now a postdoc in the Bernacher lab at Université Laval. And Raphael is also in the Bernacher lab, where he is working on his PhD. He is also interested in the conservation and genomics of salmonid populations. Welcome to the podcast, Claire and Raphael. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I am excited to hear about your research on this, but if you don't mind, I'm going to try to frame the interview with a little bit of history because this is a topic that I'm very interested in. So I'm going to take us all the way back to the middle of the 19th century when a couple of guys named Remy and Gahan in France figured out that they could artificially spawn fish by squeezing the Milton eggs into a pan. And within a few decades, their technique had spawned a massive artificial spawning program in France and all over the world. And it seemed like such an obvious thing. Fish stocks are declining. Think of the Industrial Revolution. So we'll just artificially spawn them in hatcheries and dump the fish into the rivers and oceans. And voila, the problem is solved. And in the United States, which is the place I am most familiar with, a new agency came into being, the U.S. Fish Commission, which was quickly almost totally devoted to artificially spawning, raising fish in hatcheries and sending them all over the place, all over the country and all over the world. But somehow there was always this problem. These hatchery fish never quite did as well as their wild cousins. And sometimes it was an absolute disaster. Sometimes it was more subtle. But this problem with hatchery fish has been around for a long time. And throughout the 20th century, everybody was trying to figure out why these hatchery fish were not as successful as their wild cousins. And one of the obvious big ideas was that different genes were being selected for in the hatcheries. So they tried to solve that as much as possible by bringing in wild brood stock, but still it was never as successful as they hoped. And then, bang, we have the epigenetics revolution about the turn of the 21st century, I'm going to say, but maybe one of you can fix that history for me a little bit. And good old Jean-Baptiste Lamarck gets pulled out of the dustbin and refurbished. And then <laughs> Claire and Raphael come along and their colleagues, I should say, and decide to start applying epigenetics to this hatchery problem. So I'm going to stop there. Do you guys have a statue of Lamarck in your lab? No, not yet. It's <laughs> under <true>. construction. <laughs> okay. Okay. So more seriously, could you back up and provide, Claire, could you provide us with a much more articulate explanation of epigenetics and, and what we've learned in this sort of brief time that we've understood it? Yeah. So a lot of evolutionary genetic research has focused on differences in DNA sequence at this point. So like, even if we think back to Jurassic Park, they're modifying like the bases of the DNA. And so that's a lot of what can contribute towards um, variation. But epigenetics considers not differences in DNA sequence, but rather differences in the use of the DNA. So how expressed something is, how much it's used in order to affect the organism's phenotype, rather than any actual changes in DNA sequence. 
And so this can be through a few different mechanisms or modifications to the DNA. The one that we study is DNA methylation, which is just a modification to the DNA um, where a methyl group, which is just a carbon with three hydrogens, is added onto the DNA. And generally, this shuts down the expression of that gene or reduces the expression of that gene. Okay, so here we have potentially genes that are important in the wild that may not be as useful in the hatchery. So somehow a, a methyl group gets attached to that particular gene. How does the meth methylation happen? So there are a lot of methylating and demethylating enzymes. Um, and so they can add or remove methyl groups from the DNA. And there are a bunch of proteins that can be involved with sort of targeting those methyl groups to the DNA. But DNA methylation is really sensitive to the environment. So even a shift between a natural environment and a hatchery envi environment could lead to a change in the methylation state of that fish. Okay, so that brings us pretty quickly into your research. And you guys recently published a paper about this. How about maybe we switch over to you, Raphael? Could you describe what your current research is and the paper that you just published about epigenetics and hatchery fish? Sure. Uh, so the epigenetic paper was more led by, um, by Claire, but uh, during my master's thesis, we were interested in the reproductive fitness difference between Atlantic salmon that were uh, supplemented uh, to a river to their uh, wild uh, counterparts. So basically, we took advantage of a uh, dam that was constructed uh, four kilometers away from the river mouth, and we could intercept every returning adult in uh, 2018. So Sorry, we what, could. What river is this? It's the Rimouski River uh, in Quebec province. Okay. It's kind of a small population of salmon. It has been supplemented since the early uh, 90s, I think. It started in uh, 1994, I think, the, the supplementation of this river. Oh, that's pretty late. So, yeah, that's pretty late. And uh, it was supplemented uh, for um, about 20 years, uh, even more, 25 years or so. And uh, the, the supplementation stopped 2019 when the, the population uh, reached its appropriate uh, conservation limit. So we're talking about, uh, I think, 500 individuals or so. Okay. Uh, about half of the population is uh, hatchery-produced uh, fish. A single hatchery? Yes. So you were able to catch the adults as they returned because they bang into this dam and have nowhere to go. So go on with... So basically, we took a genetic, you know, a little fin clip on these fish, and we genotyped those with uh, microsatellites. And the next year, we came... Uh, Hold on. Just to make sure no one's confused, a microsatellite has nothing to do with the thing that's flying around in the, in the sky. It is a short snippet of DNA that has multiple tandem repeats and is very heterozygous, very variable. So it's helpful for identifying individuals, right? Exactly. And especially to do some uh, parentage assignment. So assign offspring to their respective uh, parents, because this is what we, uh, we did. Basically, we wanted uh, to compare reproductive success between hatchery reared and uh, wild fish. So basically, we went to uh, Rimouski River to sample every uh, adult in 2018. And in 2019, we sampled 20, uh, 220 uh, sampling sites where we captured offspring using uh, electric, electro fishing. So we captured 3,000 offspring uh, that we uh, assigned to their, their parents using uh, the same uh, microsatellites. And basically, this way, we demonstrated that the 
hatchery salmon have about 80% of the reproductive success of wild salmon. So basically, this was telling us that the hatchery fish didn't do as well as wild fish. This this was something we knew already in other uh, other species. Salmon mm-hmm. is uh, have less, you know, study demonstrating this. Uh, but basically, this was like the, the founder results that led to uh, Claire's project. Okay. So do you want to continue the story then, Claire? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I came in and around the beginning of my postdoc, uh, the Ministry of Forestry, Fauna and Parks in Quebec was interested in uh, investing a bit more into this project and looking into whether there were epigenetic differences between the wild and hatchery reared fish. And so Raphael's project gave a really unique opportunity because we have these wild, these fish that have been released out into the wild and are captured and basically forcibly captured as they're returning after their marine migration, um, which is not something that's particularly easy to do with salmon coming up a river and knowing which ones are wild and which ones are hatchery, hatchery reared. Um, and so it was relatively easy just for them to capture. Well, not relatively easy. It took a lot of work. <laughs> I wasn't involved. So it was relatively easy for me, but um, the fish were uh, captured. And then Raphael Again, it was relatively easy for me, but Raphael did a ton of work on uh, assigning parentage to all of um, the offspring that then were produced um, in that river. And so I came in and I selected some of the parents and some of the offspring for methylation analysis. And so I wanted for the parents, I wanted to see whether after that oceanic migration, whether there were still differences in the methylation state of wild and hatchery reared parents. So based off of that short duration in the hatchery for the hatchery reared parents, um, was that sufficient after multiple years in the sea for there still to be those epigenetic effects of hatchery rearing? And could those be passed on to offspring? So is hatchery rearing having an effect for offspring that are coming from hatchery reared parents? And how can basically both the maternal origin and the paternal origin interfere because there can be things like parental effects on different traits and on DNA methylation as well and on epigenetic mechanisms, where basically the effects of the mother and the effects of the father aren't necessarily the same. And so they can influence their offspring in slightly different ways, or in my case, targeted to slightly different regions of the DNA. Okay, so let's back up because what you just said is one of the most interesting thing about epigenetics is that what happens to the parent during its lifetime can be passed down to the offspring, but not through any change in the DNA sequence, but rather through this methylation process, right? Yeah, yeah. So all of the uh, epigenetic mechanisms, so there's DNA methylation, but there are also modifications to the histone proteins in DNA, and there can even be um, inherited microRNA expression. So those are the three main epigenetic mechanisms. But it's been shown repeatedly that there can be heritability based off of parental environmental exposure, even parental genotype, things like that. Um, All sorts of experiences, basically everything that the parent goes through can influence their methylation state. And if that, if those methylation changes or those epigenetic changes are incorporated into reproductive cells or the germline, then they can be passed on to offspring. And so potentially offspring are being influenced not by their own environment, but they can be influenced based off of whatever their parent experiences. Yeah. And so there's been some amazing stuff like this on humans even. I recall reading about some people that survived the siege of Leningrad passing on stuff like this. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, there are all sorts of things, like even the uh, Dutch potato famine and things like that. There, there have been studies that have shown that 80 years later, based off of parental experiences during the Dutch potato famine, or even a particularly cold Quebec winter about 20 years ago, people who were pregnant during that time passed on sort of methylation changes to their offspring. And so that's led to all sorts of health conditions and things like that in the offspring. That's so crazy and so amazing. It's not just Darwinian evolution that we're dealing with anymore. Okay, so I I sort of backtracked there. So here we are again with our fish, and we've got our hatchery fish and our wild fish. And you went to see if the hatchery fish had methylation on certain... Did you know the genes you were looking at? No, we used a whole genome methylation sequencing. Wow. So it was part of the entire genome. So we assessed... um, using PCA, like principal component analysis, across the entire genome just to see if there were overall trends across a giant salmonid genome, mm-hmm. um, whether we could pick out even just at the whole genome level, whether there were differences between hatchery-reared and wild fish. And then we also used a, a targeted uh, method of looking for differences in regions of uh, the DNA that have different levels of methylation between uh, hatchery and wild fish. Okay. And so keep going. What what did you find? Uh, so overall in the parents, we found that even after years spent in the ocean, we were seeing differences in methylation between hatchery reared and wild fish. And so those were persisting on until the salmon were coming back to spawn. Um, and so clearly the effects of hatchery rearing are lasting for quite a while. And this is something that's been shown by other people from our lab, uh, like Mava. Um, has a similar paper showing this in, I believe, coho salmon. And so it does seem like the effects of hatchery rearing are relatively long-lasting within within a fish's lifespan if they're actually exposed to that hatchery environment. Hmm. Um, and in the parents, we also found considerable sex-specific effects of hatchery rearing. So hatchery rearing was affecting males and females differently. Hmm. Um, and in terms of the regions... The number of regions that were differentially methylated between male hatchery fish and male uh, wild fish, we found about twice as many as between the two groups of female fish. And so it seems like hatchery rearing um, is having a greater effect on the methylation state of male fish than female fish. And so this is really interesting, actually, because uh, Mark Christie published a big meta-analysis on the effects of hatchery rearing a few years ago. And he showed that overall, the relative reproductive success of male hatchery fish is a lot lower than that of female hatchery fish. Um, and so it does seem like hatchery rearing is differentially affecting male and female fish. Okay. And so what did that mean for this particular population that you studied? Uh, so basically, uh, uh, for the reproductive success analysis, I divided uh, my data set in three groups. So uh, female, multi-sea winter, uh, male, multi-sea winter, and uh, male, one-sea winter. So those uh, called uh, grills that spend only uh, one winter at sea. Uh, and basically, females and um, males that spent multiple winter at sea had about 80% of the reproductive success of wild fish in the same category. Okay. Uh, so, And it was a significant result, but uh, it was the first time we were seeing uh, like the same reduction in reproductive success, both in, in males and in females. So that, mm-hmm. that was kind of a weird result. Although uh, for one sea winter salmon, we've seen that uh, their reduction in uh, reproductive success was, was much greater. So they had, uh, had about 60% of the reproductive success of 
uh, wild once you winter male. So these were more affected, poss possibly because they were in uh, less good condition for sexual uh, se sexual reproduction. I, I don't know. Can you distinguish the methylation between the one sea winter fish and the two sea winter male fish? So we didn't really look into that, to be honest. Okay. Um, we did end up finding two different cohorts of hatchery fish. So uh, one that really resembled wild, wild fish and then one that didn't resemble wild fish at all, which we considered to be our normal hatchery cohort. Huh. Um, so initially, when I was talking to Rafael about this, we thought that it would just be the one sea winter versus multiple sea winter fish. Maybe the multiple sea winter fish spend more time in a natural environment, so they start losing those mm -hmm. methylation differences that are caused by the hatchery environment. But we couldn't actually tell any sort of difference between the one sea winter and multiple sea winter fish. Okay. okay, so you said there are two cohorts. Is that just two different years from the same hatchery, or is there two different hatcheries, or what are we talking about with these two cohorts? So we actually found it through the methylation data. So both when we did a principal component analysis for the whole genome and when we did our sort of targeted methylation analysis, for both of them, we saw this sort of distinction where the hatchery group was splitting into two different groups, one of which was very similar to the wild fish and tended to kind of cluster with the wild fish. And then one that was very dissimilar from the wild fish, which is kind of what we would expect in terms of the effects of hatchery rearing on methylation. But somehow there's one group of the hatchery fish that's actually very similar to the wild fish in terms of uh, their methylation state. And so probably in terms of the regulation of their genes. So did all these fish come from just one hatchery? Yes. Yeah. All the yeah, they, fish. yeah. The hatchery fish came from the Quebec government hatchery in Tadoussac. Okay. Um, so they were all reared there. And when we found when we found that there were two different cohorts of hatchery fish, we actually, uh, I went back to Julian, who's one of our collaborators, and we tried to figure out why this might be happening. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were hoping that we would just find something simple, like, oh, one group was treated with an antibiotic and one wasn't, or mm -hmm. something that would be simple and explanatory, or, well, we kept half of the fish outside in a tank and half of them inside in heath stacks or mm -hmm. something like that. There was nothing like that. Um, from talking to the hatchery manager, we couldn't, they didn't do any special manipulations on half of the fish versus the other half. The only thing that they can think of is that they had released some of the hatchery fish right where they're wild salmon of about the same age in terms of the river when they were doing the release. And then some of them, some of the hatchery fish were released a bit further up the river where there weren't actually wild fish. And huh. so it's possible that it's an effect of basically a shared environment between one of the hatchery cohorts and the wild fish. But it's not something that we can definitively say really based off of what we know was done to the hatchery fish. We wish we had more information on it. but Well, it sounds like a great opportunity to apply for a new grant. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> We'll have to talk to Louis. Because <laughs> that's a huge, that's a really important finding. I mean, if you could figure out how some fish were more close to the wild fish than others, that would be pretty significant in terms of how we manage hatcheries or release or whatever it might be, right? Yeah, no, we were really encouraged by that. Um, and of course, our uh, friends from MFFP, the Quebec government, were excited about this, you know, and we were really trying to explain what was happening. But I mean, future studies on this that kind of manipulate the hatchery environment might be able to find different ways to sort of minimize the effects of hatchery rearing on fish. 
And there have been other studies on methylation in fish that have shown that sort of environmental enrichment uh, versus having a very barren tank can influence the methylation state of fish. And, you know, all, all sorts of things and manipulations to the environment can influence methylation state. So I think there's a lot to do there. So on that note, and I think you're probably just going to have to get into a hypothesis here, but what, how do you explain this diminished reproductive success in the hatchery fish? Is there something behavioral or what's going on? So there, Raphael would be very well, <laughs> very good to answer this. But yeah, hatchery rearing has a bunch of uh, different phenotypic effects on fish, things like swimming capacity and um, like heart morphology, like their ability to sort of even pump blood through their body and things like that. Like it affects cardiac function and all sorts of things. Mm, definitely. But also I think be, behaviorally speaking, the hatchery fish seems less fit in the, in control condition. There, there was experiment uh, led by uh, Jan Fleming where he showed that basically uh, hatchery fish were less competitive in acquiring like uh, females or uh, just reproductive opportunity and we're less fit at fighting off other males. So it's been shown in experimental condition uh, for coho salmon, not specifically for Atlantic salmon, but we can suppose it might be the same. So uh, uh, of course it's only an hypothesis, but kind of think there there is something behavioral going on too. Okay, so I'm going to throw out what I had thought was that the hatchery fish were more aggressive than wild fish because they had an unlimited food supply. You know, they've got pellets coming in all day long, so they've got unlimited food, so they don't have to worry about conserving energy, so they just burn their energy like crazy. Is that something that's going on here or not? Yeah, we kind of uh, stated that hypothesis in the, the paper we published on uh, uh, reduced reproductive success. So being more aggressive, they would spend more energy for uh, not necessarily more reproductive opportunities. So it, it could be a good explanation, something that has been shown by Jan Fleming on co-hosting. So yeah, I think that's definitely one possibility. And another aspect of your research, I think, Raphael, it was in one of the papers that you sent me, was when should we release these fish from the hatchery? This has import for that, correct? Yes, definitely. And, uh, you know, the, the Minister of uh, Wildlife in Quebec that uh, controls, you know, this uh, reproduction in uh, captivity, they, they evolved their protocols through, uh, you know, the 25 years that hatchery supplementation happened. And at first, they were supplementing small, so mm -hmm. youngs that are ready to go uh, to, at sea. Mm -hmm. and, but they realized in 2014 that these fish had about 40% of the reproductive success of wild fish. So basically, that, that means that spending more time in captivity in early life results in pronounced reduced fitness. Uh -huh. So basically, after this study, they started uh, supplementing younger uh, life stages. So uh, they, they, reduced, uh, they released alvins mm -hmm. uh, and then so, uh, pars too. But although it would be best to uh, supplement very young li uh, life stages, it also come uh, with the, the, the cost of you know, supplementing lots of individuals that will die off very uh, quickly. So mm -hmm. it's better. Well, uh, recently they, they started just supplementing uh, pars instead of alvins, yeah, 
phrase. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting math problem, right? The trade-offs yeah. of, of one life stage versus another. Exactly, yes. Okay, so earlier you mentioned also the potential impacts on the offspring of these hatchery fish. Can you elaborate a little more on what you found in terms of that? Well, yeah, these last read, the, the offspring results that Claire, uh, Claire demonstrated, that's pretty cool too because it kind of shows that it's not, you know, the hatchery uh, parents that reproduce in the wild not necessarily uh, transmit their uh, epigenetic uh, marks to their offspring. So basically, when those hatchery fish reproduce, it does not mean that they will produce offspring which reduce their reproductive success. Uh, so that's pretty interesting because one of the worry uh, we have when uh, we supplement uh, in individuals in rivers is that there, there's lots of hatchery fish in the population that have reduced reproductive success and through uh, generations uh, of uh, like reproduction of fish that have reduced reproductive success, it, it will lower the productivity of the population. Mm -hmm. that, that's something that has been shown in uh, in Scotland, I think, in populations that were supplemented in the 80s with small fish. And so you have actual data on this, Claire? Yeah. So in terms of the methylation analysis, we analyzed both the parents and then their offspring, knowing the parentage of the offspring. Uh, so we considered four different groups. So there's the pure wild offspring, the pure hatchery offspring, and then the two reciprocal hybrids. So the first one where the mother is hatchery reared and the father is wild. And then the second one where the mother is wild and the father is hatchery reared. So because we've shown that there are sex-specific effects of, of hatchery rearing, and we also know that there can be differences in maternal versus paternal effects on different traits and on DNA methylation, we wanted to see basically, does the origin of each individual parent influence methylation. So overall, when we were considering the parental analysis um, and looking for regions that show differences in methylation between hatchery-reared and wild fish, we were generally finding a couple thousand differentially methylated regions between the hatchery and wild. Although, of course, we have that one hatchery cohort that doesn't have very many differences compared to the wild fish. But for the offspring, we were actually only finding a couple hundred. So there's basically a, an order of magnitude fewer methylation changes that are actually being passed on to offspring based off of hatchery rearing. And so in order for methylation changes to be passed on to offspring, they have to be incorporated into the parental germline. And so probably a lot of the changes in the parents are actually just somatic changes, but they don't necessarily have implications for the offspring unless they're actually incorporated into the gametes. So that's good news. It is. The only thing is that the patterns of inheritance that we found were pretty complex. So it wasn't just, you know, it matters whether the dad was hatchery reared or whether the mom was, but a lot of them seem to depend both on whether the mother was hatchery reared and whether the father was hatchery reared. So it was hinting at sort of non-additive effects where both the maternal genome and the paternal genome are influencing the methylation state of offspring. And so it's not something that's ultimately extremely predictable. It's not like sort of heritability, like strict heritability, where it's just a simple mom is red and dad is white. And so the offspring is pink. Mm -hmm. It's like mom is red and dad is white. So the offspring is purple, right. you know. <laughs> so it's not something that's going to be super easy to sort of predict in terms of the methylation changes that are passed on to offspring. And so those could still have considerable effects on offspring methylation and gene expression and phenotype. But it is reassuring that there are fewer 
changes passed on to offspring than there are in the actual parent generation. Okay. So what does this mean going forward? What's your next paper, your next research project? <laughs> uh, in terms of hatchery rearing, I'd be really interested in sort of manipulating the hatchery environment and seeing how that might lead to changes in methylation um, and seeing if we can kind of reduce the epigenetic effects of hatchery rearing on parents and on offspring. Um, and I'd also be interested in seeing for the effects that are passed on to offspring, what kind of phenotypic effects are those associated with? What implications could those have for offspring phenotype and fitness? And potentially even tracking the offspring of those hatchery-reared fish and seeing how do they do in the wild? Do they also have reduced reproductive success? And sort of how insidious are the effects of hatchery-rearing? Or because we're seeing this fairly severe reduction in the epigenetic effects of hatchery-rearing after a single generation, are we sort of in the clear after one generation or after two generations and sort of continuing the effects of hatchery-rearing through a pedigree? I think something like that would be really cool to do. Yeah, it's so important. Is that what your PhD is going to be on, Raphael? Uh, not really. I'm moving on on a different subject. Uh, but I think there is definitely, uh, as Claire said, uh, opportunities to manipulate the uh, the hatchery environment to limit th this difference in the epigenetic marks between wild and hatchery fish. So the Rimouski River was not the most, you know, up-to-date uh, hatchery there is at the moment. There is some hatchery uh, at uh, Romain River, which is on the north coast of the St. Lawrence River, where they basically rear hatchery fish in the same water where the population uh, is. So they they divert the, the river flow into their hatchery, so the, the same water is used. And this is this was not something that uh, was done for the Rimouski River, where the hatchery was more than 100 kilometers away from the actual uh, river where the, uh, mm. the offspring were uh, supplemented to. And I think it's kind of like the, the next step for hatchery, you know, reproduce as much as possible the early life uh, environment that the wild fish go in. Okay, yeah. And then I have another question that I sort of meant to get to earlier, but got distracted on. We talk about reproductive success as though it's just this obvious thing, but do you have any hypotheses on what is driving reproductive success? Is it is it the actual spawning event itself? Is it the fertility of the eggs? Is it what's what's what do you think is driving the reproductive success? Uh that, that's a very good question and it's always hard to uh to determine using uh, observatory science like that. I mean, we just documented the, the reproductive success uh, uh, as a whole, as uh, the number of offspring that survived uh, after like four months of hatching. So we could have measured different uh, types of uh, repro reproductive fitness. We could have uh, counted the number of reds, females, the uh, drug uh, counter, uh, Count the number of eggs they they put in the, in each reds. Like measure the, the the size of the 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 eggs. Also, this is the, to isolate what is the the exact you know uh, reduction in uh, in uh, physiology uh, uh, thing uh, that happened to do. Yeah, but yeah. but but the fact that males have less. Uh, Reproductive fitness than uh, wild males uh, might be caused by uh, behavioral factors, I think. 
And it's not really surprising that the females are not as affected as the males. Is it given that it's a sort of male competition for the females? Exactly. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, that was very interesting, you guys. So we usually have five questions, but I'm going to narrow it down to two questions that we end the interview with. The first one is very simple. Claire, what is your favorite fish? I have to say Chinook salmon just because of my PhD and how many Chinook salmon I ate. <laughs> <laughs> you ate? Well, yeah. You were sampling <laughs> out, of the, out of, you'd go to the lab freezer and bring something home for dinner? No, on the net pens <laughs> at, a, at the fish farm that we did some of our work at. It was one of the perks of the job. So yeah, I can't find Chinook salmon anywhere. So it's kind of like that prized fish that I can't get to living closer to the East Coast. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And how about you, Raphael? Do you have a favorite fish? Uh, that's a good question. I think I, I kind of like Cisco as an evolutionary system. It's kind of the Darwin finches of uh, the fish, I think. Yeah, right. Interesting. Okay. And then I'm going to skip all the way to the last question. Claire, if there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I guess that epigenetics is hopefully cool and interesting and accessible to people. It's something that I'm really, really passionate about. And, you know, ever since my undergrad, I've been really interested in epigenetics. And I know that it's kind of an intimidating topic sometimes, but I think it's really something that's upcoming and can be important for fisheries science and understanding sort of how some of these traits that we're seeing that can't be explained by genetic differences could be passed on to offspring and, you know, have implications for conservation and management decisions. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's fascinating as well. Raphael, do you want to stick with that one or do you have a, a different answer? I think this one's pretty good, but I, I think people should know that fishes are cool in general. <laughs> I can tie those together. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to finish it off. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by buying some awesome swag on the Teespring store. Thank you, Claire, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you, Raphael, for coming on the show. No problem. It was great. Thanks. I'm Anders Halverson. Thank you for listening. And remember that epigenetics and fish are both really cool. And when you put them together, you get double cool. 